welcome. Uh, there was a hangover from uh, last year's collection on the history of anatomy, which I said I'd do. And so this is it, the genderization of anatomy, monism and theory of women. I don't really think of anatomy as a very gender-based subject in terms of gender bias, but it is, has been historically structured uh, as really the anatomy of the male uh, to a large extent. And I think women were considered, certainly from the Renaissance on, as kind of inverted or converted or even some might have said subverted male anatomy. And it, it uh, translated into an ability, I think, to use anatomy, to exploit it uh, in some ways, um, to render women inferior by virtue of their biology. Um, so every aspect, I think, has a kind of gender orientation, and that's really what I want to talk about in this um, uh, subject. Later on, I think um, uh, we're going to look at a bit more of the anatomy in a group of uh, essays called, uh, or talks called, Opening Bodies about the process of dissection, and subsequently then in a group of talks called Picturing Bodies, which is about the art-anatomy interface. If I can remind those who are interested in making a contribution to our site, uh, they can do so by patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, that is all capitals, A-N for Nelly, A-T-O-P-O-D. So patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, if you like these kinds of talks. Um, later this week, I'm going to put out the fourth one of the anatomy cupboard called Michelangelo's Nose. Um, all contributions are really greatly appreciated. We're going to try and improve the quality of these audios and ultimately convert into an audio-visual channel. But let's get started with the genderization of anatomy, monism and the theory of women, provocative title. I wanted to start, as I always do, with quotes. Um, this one comes from Johann Wilhelm Heinrich Siegenbein, who was born in 1766 and who died in... 1824, uh, who wrote a book in 1808 called The Pronouncement on the Nature of the Female and Her Education. Extraordinary title. Boys will seize on a stick, while girls will take up a doll. The men rule the affairs of state, while women govern the affairs of the home. Reflects nothing other than what is already in the seed of the embryo. This is a sort of notion. The feminist writer from Feminist Studies, uh, writing in 1986, Evelyn Fox Keller, said that the only secret of nature was that there were no secrets, and now that secret was out. I like that quote. And then Elizabeth Gross, uh, who wrote an interesting article called Towards a Corporeal Feminism in uh, a journal called Australian Feminist Studies in the late 80s, said that women's specificities, their corporeality and subjectivities are not inherently resistant to representation or depiction. They may be unrepresentable in a culture in which the masculine can represent others only as a version of itself, 
where the masculine relies on the subordination of the feminine. But this is not logically or biologically fixed. It can be contested and changed. It can be redefined, reconceived, reinscribed in ways entirely different from those that make it today. Again, a very good quote. And from an oft-quoted kind of feminist, male feminist writer, Thomas W. Lecoeur, who wrote in Fragments for a History of the Human Body that was edited by Michelle Fair, among others, in the late 80s as well. More ink has been spilled, I suspect, about the clitoris than almost any other organ, or at least about any organ its size. So there's a lot of antagonism from that point of view. Things to think on. Throughout much of the history of anatomy, one of its inherent failings as a democratising force has been its distinctly gendered approach. The macroscopic view of the body afforded by dissection described the overt visual differences between men and women. It was an annotated reinforcement honouring scripture with the belief that a thorough understanding of the body resulted ipso facto in an appreciation of the mind of God. But in defining human structure, whose body was it about? Until Vesalius' anatomy had been forced to develop in isolation without any real protocol to follow, although this did not impede a general acceptance of the fundamentally anatomical basis for the difference between the sexes. The growing perception of woman was a Renaissance construct which had been given its theological blessing. The anatomical separation of the sexes could then be used actually as the pretext for the social subjugation of women. Women were defined in an entirely genital sense in a way in which men were not. The measurements of their cranial cavities, the weights of women's brains, were given a subpar standard in history when compared with their male counterparts. A lot of articles from the 18th century and studies on that. And there followed a sort of frenzy to quantify the gender differences in everything, accompanied by an immodest male obsession with the hidden anatomy of the female and an insatiable desire to understand what one might call her secretus mulieribus, the the female secret. Anatomy was always about the compilation of lists. It's always been about that. But it became a means for her physical dissection to anatomise her nature, correlating those features of woman with the presumptive aspects of her character. Here was her nurturing ability, her compassion, but here too was the anatomical basis for her limited capacity for reasoning. Anatomy was exploited in that way, uh, and it's that that I'm going to talk a little bit about in, in, in this talk now. Here was the physical foundation for her guile, for example, or her inherent susceptibility to possession, her uh, possession by demons and so forth. These were usually women, rarely or uncommonly men. Her psychology, her very essence, were a consequence of her inescapable anatomy, and both reinforced a kind of submissive role for women in society. I'll expand on that a little bit. 
anatomy intersection with the province, actually in practice, of privileged men, somewhat obsessed with the mission of the navigators and cartographers, as I've said before, to inscribe new territory. But it was also an endeavour that uh, shared the preoccupation of the cosmologists for a kind of universal organisation. There was for anatomists an expectation that the order observable in the heavens could be found in miniature, in microcosmos, in the body of man, from which woman, in the best biblical traditions, was derived. Now, whilst the 18th century saw a distinct focus uh, on the physiologic processes which were surrounding reproduction, the overwhelming impression of a prurient male interest in female reproductive anatomy still really remained, freeing up the anatomists to really dissect, explore, annotate and hypothesise the transition of the anatomical vantage point of the human body from Galen to Descartes in the manner that we've described in previous podcasts only served to cement the notion that woman was wholly derivative of man and that her internal Hidden anatomy was no more mysterious than inverting a sock puppet. What? I'll explain what I mean. Galen first articulated the monist one-sex notion of the female as basically an inverted male in his second volume on the usefulness of the parts of the body. Now, he likened it really to a retaining scabbard, the the, uh, the term vagina, however, did not appear until 1700, although Vesalius had described it and the artist Stefan van Kalke had drawn it a century and a half before. It was precisely what anyone would expect from inverting a penis, just as it was obvious that the vulva was merely just a cleft scrotum. So this was the idea of woman, a kind of derivative inversion of man. The ovaries, too, were just the equivalent of the testes only they'd secreted their way to the inside of the abdomen in order, so the theory went, to produce, under cooler climates, their weakened female ejaculation. Yes, the 18th century woman was thought to contribute to reproduction of the species by her, ejacula by her ejaculation or her ejaculate. Now, put in its um, simplest terms... Most of the female anatomy, both inside and out, with the exception of the uterus, which we'll discuss later, relied on this monist theorem, which identified organs and tissues in males, for which one could then locate homologous counterparts in women. And it was an idea that had persisted until physicians like uh, Rainier de Graff, who was born in 1641, died fairly early at 1673, began to appreciate the distinct physiologic nature of ovarian follicle production and development. And when university departments of anatomy devolved into subsections that were devoted to such subjects as spermatology, histology and embryology. And before then, the idea of a physical mutability of women permitted the fanciful and imaginative view that with effort little girls could actually transform into little boys if they simply jumped up and down hard enough. In his uh, delightful story De la Fausse l'Imagination, Michel de Montaigne 
who was born in 1522 and died in 1592, writes of a village girl named Marie, who becomes the boy Germain after doing just that. Presumably her internal organs, tired of their femaleness, had decided, as he admits under the sheer force of her imagination, to drop the heat that was believed to control their function, and by foregoing the strength contained in their retaining ligaments, suddenly transform into a penis and a scrotum. That's Montaigne's book, which uh, is uh, available in a 1993 um, edition. More than this, whimsically, it, it was the task of Renaissance anatomy to square with the notion of how woman was formed in the first place. According to Genesis, and this anatomy had to rely on the Bible, this was the theological concept of an acceptable dissection, but according to Genesis, her reliance on male morphology proved an indicator not only of the incompleteness of her body, she was from Adam's rib, but also of a kind of general inferiority. From this premise were derived the characteristic female traits. Imperfect beings, of course, couldn't be considered rational, and no matter how inherently empathetic she might be deemed by her very nature, she should be considered no more than one amongst God's subservient creatures. If women were like men, but different, then there was a divine reason. And as the practice of anatomy became socially elevated by the penetrating and exhaustive dissections, one may say, performed by its respected men of science, the effect was to really reinforce that distinction of gender. There's much, for example, in the symbolism of the frontispiece to the 1543 Fabrica uh, of Vesalius, which defines how Vesalius actually viewed the conduct of dissection of the cadaver. Firstly, if you look at that frontispiece, it's a performance in which he stands in exposition as the central figure. Most of the eyes of his thronged audience trained directly upon him as they crowd into a colonnade built more like a a Roman temple in a hall of education. Some people are playing cards and others are chattering. There's a monkey to the side, perhaps signalling dissection of one of its own kind in some homage to the study of comparative anatomy, and below is a dog waiting as the final beneficiary of the tissue carver. But the real centre of that very evocative image uh, drawn by Van Kalker is the open abdomen and pelvis of the cadaver, and it's not by chance that it's the overt display of a woman. Centre stage, Vesalius is clearly pointing out the mysteries of her interior, splayed out for all to see, as the doorway to her most intimate parts. Her body is even twisted towards us a little so as to advantage the most unwholesome male gaze. Dissecting a woman deliberately reflects his power, that's Vesalius' power in this scenario, and he knowingly includes on his work table the accoutrements of his trade. But they're not the complex instruments of his anatomies. They're the scalpel and the pen. Vesalius is telling us that he not only has acquired the knowledge of a woman's innermost anatomy, but that he also intends to write about it. In this enterprise, given the vanity of a man who had proclaimed himself not only in search of the truth, but also as that truth's foremost arbiter 
and the finest dissector of the age. It's not a stretch to conclude that he considered his fabrica, his book, in its own way, the revelation of some new gospel. Such an idea, however, even exceeded his own personal power, for this shocking introductory image to his work helped create an almost salacious Renaissance interest in the eroticization of dissection itself. Anatomization was an experience which served to objectify and fragment women, and which, despite the developing humanism of the age, genitalized her at the expense of the knowledge of the rest of her body. And I'd, I'd refer those who are interested to an amazing book uh, written uh, in 1980 by Ian McLean called The Renaissance Notion of Woman, a study in the fortunes of scholasticism and medical sciences in European intellectual life. It's a great uh, read of the Renaissance concept of women. I'll not attempt to buy into much of the feminist argument that has sought to revise the characterization of Renaissance woman, except, uh, women, except to suggest that much, if not all, of public dissection constituted the concept of femaleness through a male lens. Some of this skewed interest in female dissection, to be fair, might only in part have been because of the imposition of the statutes regarding the anatomization of criminals condemned to death. It had resulted in the relative rarity of ever seeing a woman dissected. In Florence, for example, between 1420 and 1469, of the 331 people who were executed, only 10 were women. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity to see female anatomy. By comparison, when public dissection began in Amsterdam in 1555, it was initially restricted to male bodies only, with no dissections of women until the rules were changed in the early 1600s. In England, access to female corpses for dissection was very limited from the courts. In order to avoid the indignity of anatomization, female criminals convicted of treason or mariticide or of heresy, for example, or of counterfeiting, were executed by being burnt at the stake. And it was considered so cruel that they were often either poisoned or strangled first. Uh, and I think that's an extraordinary view, particularly, that subsequently was not removed uh, until the uh, that sentence was abolished, in fact, by the Treason Act of 1719. By contrast, for example, in Montpellier, the 1560 Statute of France decreed that dissection of female bodies was essential for midwives uh, to attend so that they had sufficient knowledge to provide what were called abortion testimonies. According to his biographer, Charles O'Malley, Vesalius himself only ever dissected a handful of women and girls. And the first which he performed with his mentor Gunther of Andernach on a Parisian prostitute who had hanged herself. Another was recorded on an 18-year-old girl from Brussels who was one of the entourage of the Countess of Egmont. And others uh, that he had documented included a Paduan girl of six and a 17-year-old hunchback from Pisa. In each case, Vesalius made a particular point of dissecting the genitalia, whether they were implicated in the death or not, and suggesting that the courtier, for example, had died of uterine strangulation, rather salaciously writing of how he had inspected the hymen of the six-year-old girl. 
and the rakish style that had him boasting in his first edition of the Fabrica of his bravado in stealing rotting bodies from the local cemetery. It seems that he could not contain himself, callously remarking on how no one could possibly have desired that little hunchbacked girl. Two hundred years later, the obsession with women's anatomy had not abated, with William Hunter openly decrying the particular difficulty of acquiring pregnant women as dissection subjects and admonishing the government for what he considered a rather soft policy on executing criminals during their confinement. In his era, although female cadavers were prized, the difficulty with body acquisition in general contributed to aspects of the secrecy of his dissection course. And uh, in his introductory lectures, which were posthumously published, he warned his students to, quote, shut our doors against strangers or such people as might choose to visit us from an idle or even malevolent curiosity. Part of the secrecy was certainly the measure of a man whose behaviour was always very guarded, driven by external competition imposed by the public infirmaries, and from his main anatomy competitors in the private sector, he was pretty paranoid. But with his extensive political networking, he was highly secretive by nature, in a lifetime spent in dispute over scientific discoveries and artefact acquisition, he, he comes across as more than little paranoid, in part his behaviour merely reflecting a kind of mercenary style that had him charging his students access to body parts for dissection. If reports are accurate, he would charge a guinea per corpse, a shilling for a foot, a sixpence an inch for bits of children. That's a bit hard to believe, but nevertheless has been reported. And as a proto-marketing genius, he promoted the attendance of wider audiences to some of his more open classes. But his students were actively discouraged from bringing their outside friends to any of his lectures that concerned the anatomy of the female genitalia. For example, historian Edward Gibbon was a frequent attendee of Hunter's lectures, as was the economist Adam Smith. The imagery of his most prized publication, The Gravid Uterus, however, desexualizes his women. There are no faces that are shown, the thighs of these women are amputated, and the detailing features of their genitals have all been carved off, leaving only a ragged open hole as the passageway for the fetus. His artist Jan van der Rimsdijk was capable of drawing the most exquisite pictures of the unborn child and of the maternal abdominal and pelvic anatomy, but he couldn't bring himself to produce realistic vaginal or vulval images. In plate 26, for example, he even covers the region with a little open book, the Dutchman sanctioning Hunter's reserve at a time when across the English Channel, Dagotee, the artist, was producing mezzotint images that reveled in vaginal realism. But how was woman defined before Hunter? The anatomical separation of the sexes was as much part of the tradition as it had been of practical dissection. Differentiating the anatomy of women from that of men was not entirely based upon the obvious differences in their external genitalia or even upon any appreciation of their internal reproductive machinery. The Renaissance notion of woman did not arise from nowhere. 
It was rooted in a pagan folkloric conflation of fertile womanliness, the idea of Mother Nature, if you will, with the doctrinal story of her origin as an offshoot of man. All of this was an explanator which conferred upon her unique and remarkable characteristics. For some, her anatomy was incidental, but for others, it was indicative of her specialness. But for the religious men, who counted among their number many anatomists, not only Eve, but all women, were inherently different, what is called a nomine, with an alternate creation from man, ex ordine, a genesis which had taken place outside of paradise, eloco, and with an origin directly from Adam's flesh rather than from dust, a materia. These were all in the theology, and these unique beliefs about women needed then to be understood through their theological rather than their anatomical roots. Formed outside of conception, a concepcion, she is or was the only worldly being capable of bearing God. For these theologians, there was an interdependence between an acceptance of her beginnings and believing in and sustaining scripture. Both relegated her to a position wholly designed to differentiate her from the normal, but carried to its seemingly logical conclusion. Some of these scholastic arguments became ridiculous. Whilst there are many who viewed woman, despite her presumptive imperfections, as a direct intention of nature, what was called intentio naturae universalis, there were some who, in developing this argument along the strictest of lines, came to ridiculous conclusions that would suggest that woman was formed not in the ordinary course of nature, but rather preternaturum, outside of nature. And in this belief, even Thomas Aquinas regarded her as not only non-human, but indeed monstrous. The idea that women were form preternaturum was actually advanced by Desiderius Erasmus uh, in the uh, mid-1400s, early 1500s. In his 1509 essay, for example, in Praise of Folly, he suggested that Plato seems to doubt whether woman should be classed with the brute beasts or the rational beings. In their imperfection, Aquinas believed them to be equated with congenital monsters, intersexual beings like hermaphrodites and other so-called mistakes of nature. Both Martin Luther and John Calvin also considered a woman an imperfect product of her hostile and adverse internal bodily climate, in effect that all women were manquées, somewhat off, and as the physical evidence of a biological weakness of intellect. Indeed, much of their discussion centred around whether she actually even possessed a soul, the same sort of debate concerning whether primitive tribes were soulless, why God had placed them on the earth in the first place, and whether time spent in their conversion was actually wasted. The Franciscan friar Duns Scotus, who was born in 1266 and died in 1308, remained convinced that in heaven only, with the exception of the Virgin Mary, that all women would be resurrected as men. Extraordinary sort of thing. Before this, though, the theorem of women, which had reached the Renaissance as a model of female difference, 
had in part already been articulated by Aristotle, or more perhaps correctly by Pythagoras, in the accepted dichotomy that separated the animate things in the universe from the inanimate. Aristotelian binarism divided all things into their correlative opposites, for example, man, woman, right, left, and so on, or else into their contraries, either permitting gradations such as black and white, or absolutes such as health and illness. Whatever the anatomists discovered in their dissections of women needed then to be reconciled with a schema which itself was a compromise of pagan and Christian thought. And these anatomical definitions would then subserve the feminine social role. Put simply, theology explained female anatomy and both rationalised a biology that ineluctably disqualified women from engagement in the civic affairs of men. If all of this was too complex, the student of anatomy could always fall back on the Bible. Her role had not had uh, been perfectly detailed, for example, in Colossians 3.18, or in Ephesians 5.22, and in Peter 3.7, each a reference to her service to man. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit yourself to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. And um, uh, Ephesians 5.22 says, uh, quote, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Peter 3.7 reads, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. In this milieu, anatomical dissection could only describe but not define the feminine and for a considerable while had essentially nothing tangible to offer. The inconsistencies expressed about her social place reflected this deficiency, with one dissenting voice, the German theologian Henricus Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim, 1486-1535, in his 1529 De Nobilitate et Preselentia Femenae Sexus on the nobility and preeminence of the female sex, he was one of the few who argued for theological social superiority of women by using the same anatomical data to reach an entirely different conclusion. For Venetisheim, women were the ultimate arbiters of the outcome of their children by sheer dint of their anatomy, and as Agrippa had noted, quote, if the mothers are stupid, the sons are stupid. If the mothers are wise, the sons breathe wisdom. That's why mothers love their children more than fathers do, because they recognise and find in them much more of themselves than fathers do, unquote. For Agrippa, anatomy was not only the descriptive consequence, but also a predictor of an affectionate parental reaction to their child. The confusions in her differentiation were in part underlined by a Renaissance fascination with all things intersexual, neither one thing nor the other, and from which stemmed an unwholesome interest in freak shows and their travelling hermaphrodites and bearded ladies. Scholastic theologians had also tied themselves up in knots over whether woman as removed from man meant that Adam and even God, in whose image Adam was made, were both androgynous. 
and for a while the dilemmas proved sufficiently worrisome to religious scholars who were concerned that their schema had men engaging in intercourse with some sort of version of themselves. The arguments were overly complicated for the average person to follow, but the theological resolution of this narcissism, or even if it's clearly kind of homoerotic overtones, paradoxically benefited women by restoring them to some sort of normalcy in the eyes of the most ardent clerics. What's more, it escaped their self-imposed problem by declaring that only through the grace of God had woman been placed upon the earth intentionally. It didn't really explain anything. It was kind of faith-based. But once the certainty of her position was established and everyone accepted that God had actually meant to create her, the expectation was from then on that devout men of science should concern themselves only with defining woman by her anatomy and her physiology and not worry about the conceptual plans of nature. 17th century anatomists were preoccupied with a slew of questions about reproductive biology. There was, for example, a quite forceful debate over whether women produced semen, and if so, what was its quality? How did the fetus grow inside the womb? Was it by preformation, starting out perfectly complete, but in miniature form, with a gradual and precisely proportioned enlargement? Or was there an epigenesis, sort of beginning as some sort of primordial embryonic being that could steadily develop over time. What they asked were the prevailing internal conditions of a woman's body which determined the sex of the fetus. Those were the sort of 18th century questions of interest. The groundwork for these anatomists had been particularly vague and would only be swept away by detailed examination and observation of the body. Reproductive knowledge, although generally accepted, was the legacy of ancient dogma, devoid of experimentation and alien to a modern audience. Aristotle, for example, had a lot to say on this issue, declaring the supremacy of male over female semen, the latter, if dominant, producing a faster-growing, less robust female fetus. The seminal authority of the male was thought able to designate his stronger flesh, his hairier skin, larger arteries and veins, the great depth of his voice and a more powerful immunity ensuring that male infants were less susceptible to disease. These were the prevailing hypotheses. And if the semen from the right testicle advanced into the right side of the uterus, for example, a male child would result but the child would be effeminate if it lodged into the left uterine wall. Equally, if female semen implanted into the left side of the uterus, there'd be a female child, but if it made its way into the right-hand side, into one of the chambers reserved for males, then a virago or warrior woman would form. And much of this nonsense actually starts to disappear from the medical literature by about the mid-16th century, when the Paduan anatomist Gabriel Fallopio formally reports the structure of the internal female genitalia, part of which, of course, still bears his name in the Fallopian tubes. 
he wrote about that in his Observationes Anatomiae, which was published in Cologne in 1561. The Aristotelian dogma was certainly eradicated from the textbooks by 1600, after William Harvey wrote of his meticulous examinations of the developing chick embryo. In a sense, from here on, dissection of the visible female anatomy and its correlation with function became one watershed mark for science itself. And it might be reasonable to suggest that the movement from a one-sex model, which conflated the sexual similarities between males and females, to a two-sex model, dominated by the genital differences between the sexes, could reasonably be considered one transition point between the medieval and the modern scientific worlds. In his quest for the Homo perfectus, Bernard Siegfried Albinus created his 1774 tabula skeleti, assembling the skeleton of a composite man, first deriving his construct as a half-skeleton which he had measured out in the proportions of the best available male specimens he could find and then dissect. It was only afterwards that he fashioned the whole thing by fusing one perfect half to its mirror image, and both he and his illustrator, Jan Thunderlaar, knew full well that they'd spent their practical lifetimes on an obvious fiction. They must also have been cognizant of the fact, although it mattered little, that their idealised skeleton ignored half of the world's population. Albinus's student, Samuel Thomas von Sermering, was just as obsessed with skeletal perfection, but recognising that there were few images of the perfect skeletal female, he produced his version in 1796, hoping that the drawings he had made were the blueprints of an idealised anatomy of woman. Von Sermering's quest might to him have appeared noble, but in showing his vision of an extraordinary woman to ordinary men, all he'd done was reiterate what anyone could see, I think, in a gallery. He was hoping that his pictures would rival the sculptures, the Venus de' Medici and the Venus of Dresden, and his book, the Tabula Skeleti Feminina Juncta Descriptione, was published in Utrecht in 1796. It was presented as the first available female skeleton. But I think he ignored previous attempts, perhaps with less precision, by Marie-Geneviève Charletteau d'Arconville, who, in 1759, had produced a small printed version of the female skeleton, which she published under the name of a mentor, the anatomist Jean Jesus, as the Traité d'Ostéologie, and sort of the treatise on bones. And her pamphlet specifically highlighted the bony pelvic differences between men and women. William Cheselden, who had also earlier published a crude female skeleton in his Osteographia, the Anatomy of Bones, in 1733, was the head of the uh, new company of surgeons. Uh, so these were the sorts of works appearing. But it's arguable whether von Sommering's great quest exceeded that that could be found in the statues of a gallery. The two-sex model highlighted the osseous difference between the sexes. There were clearly disparities in the size of the bones, although these differences signified something more than male versus female. Studies of these variations became the basis for dissertations and more lists of contingent anatomical measurements and tables. 
In some cases, it provided an opportunity for the observable anatomy to act as a social reinforcement. Variations evident in the more slender bones like the female scapula, the shoulder blade and clavicle were not only attributed to the inherent differences in the power and strength of the relative upper bodies of men and women, but in the Victorian era perhaps to the popular wearing of corsets. And the clearly demonstrable sexual differences in the size and the shape of the pelvic bones were ostensibly allocated their gendered types by obstetricians in order to explain the relative ease or difficulty with childbirth. The widest variant pelvic shape with an inlet which most facilitated delivery was called and is called the gynecoid pelvis. And the narrowest pelvic girdle back to front with an hourglass mid-pelvic constriction that obstructs fetal passage is the android pelvis. This is certainly what we were taught. But although there were practical categories imposed by dissection of the pelvic types, they were also, if you think about it, surrogates of a sexual difference in nomenclature that reinforced a woman's role primarily as a bearer of children. In amongst this desire, particularly within the bones to differentiate men from women, there was for a short while an impetus to search for gender differences in all of the organs and soft tissues. These types of distinctions were fortified by a raft of dubious anatomic data amassed by the craniometers who would quantify every ledge of bone and width of foramen they could measure on their vast collection of skulls that had been expropriated from the disturbed graves of Indonesian Sulawesi, the Mongolians, the Kalmyks, the West African Koiko, the Australian Aboriginals and Native Americans. It's somewhat ironic that during the middle of the Enlightenment there were, was a particular scientific obsession to categorise the origin and the purity of the races, and to do so in part by using the measured length and breadth and width and depth of each of the cranial compartments to create a hierarchy of evolutionary and intellectual development. The skull dimensions were equally important in arbitrating a sexual difference in intelligence, and first among the enthusiasts for this approach was actually a woman, the French anatomist Marie Geneviève Charlotte Thiroux d'Arconville, born 1720 and died 1805, who gathered together reams of data and who wrote of the inverse relationship in women of the size of the pelvis to the capacity of the cranium. From her extensive records, the bigger the pelvis, the smaller the cranial cavity. But as science gained a legitimacy for accuracy in other fields of measurement, it progressed in part on the strength of such aberrant anthropological data. Noting the comparative differences in the relative size of the head and the body in a growing child, some had even equated cranial development in the foetus with uh, that of an adult woman. Ignoring the barriers erected throughout history which prevented the participation of women in the physical sciences, this sort of anatomical data helped normalise the narrative that omitted any significant female contribution to the history of scientific progress. Feminist historical revision cannot, however, manufacture the women of science denied entry into the faculties and who were lost forever to the dominion of original ideas. The higher education of women was largely seen as a social experiment,
Those notable be few from this era, like Laura Bassi, born in 1711, died 1778, who was permitted to graduate and became the first female professor of physics at the University of Bologna, could only do so with the personal intervention of Pope Benedict XIV, and many others could only enter the universities because of parental patronage. One example of a fatherly connection was Dorothea von Rode Schlözer, born 1770, died 1825, whose father, August, was the professor at Göttingen. She was the first woman in Germany to complete a PhD dissertation, but she wasn't even permitted to attend the graduating ceremony. She was forced to watch the degrees being conferred at the university through the window of an adjacent library. It's absolutely ridiculous. Women may gradually have been accepted as academics, but they were still excluded from the prestigious societies. The Royal Society in England, opening its doors in 1660, didn't accept women members until 1945. Berlin's Académie der Wissenschaften started in 1700, but didn't accept women until 1949. And France's Académie Royale des Sciences, commencing in 1666, only admitted its first female member in 1979. The medical schools, too, were particularly slow to admit women, frequently framing their argument against their entry around the unwomanly activity of dissection of the cadaver, which is our principal subject. The rise of medical photography had used the corpse in its dissection like a rite of passage for a high-end pranksterism that included skeletons sitting up with cigarettes inserted into their mouths or rounding off a group playing cards with the cadaver included as one of a quorum of dissecting anatomists. There are plenty of these pictures around. There were innumerable schools photographing the cadaver in the foreground of a picture where the students lined up behind it in rows that reflected a pecking order, much like the Rembrandt group portraits of the surgeons or the collected portraits of the city burghers and wardens. The medical school epithets written in chalk on the trays holding the partially dissected bodies ranged from the prophetic and literary to the absurd and were ways in which a male bonhomie was expressed through the shared experience of dissecting a corpse. There's uh, really uh, an excellent book on this by John Harley Warner and James M. Edmondson called Dissection, Photographs of a Rite of Passage in American Medicine, 1880 to 1930. It was put out in 2009, a really wonderful book. Some of these descriptions written on the cadavers or written on boards around the cadavers were profound. Man's usefulness ends not with death was chalked into the sideboard of a 1908 photograph from the Medical College of Virginia. Others earlier from the same school in 1898 reflected a more Shakespearean gravitas with five impeccably dressed students lamenting over the remains of a fully dissected corpse, writing that, quote, we have shuffled off his mortal coil, unquote. Still others were self-referential, quote, his time was bad but ours was worse, unquote, or she lived for others but died for us, sought through humour to investigate or, or to invigorate perhaps both the sacrifice of the corpse and the nobility of a profession that was reeling from its complicity in nefarious 
corporeal acquisition. The seriousness of such an occasion could readily be diluted by including the cadaver into a bit of gallows humour, sort of old boys club. And some were overtly racist, as in Baltimore's 1902 class, which propped one cadaver up writing, they're all coons smell alike to us, horrendous. Uh, that also comes from Warner and Edmondson. The irony was not lost either on African Americans or on women alike that both were actually the fodder for dissection by schools that, as a matter of policy, barred them entry. Well into the 1960s, this sort of dissection camaraderie centred around ribald banter, reverie, cigar smoking, heavy drinking, collegiate rituals of initiation, where the exclusion of women, if not an intention, was certainly a consequence. The historian Michael Sapol, um, who's really worth reading, has referred to this as homosocial behaviour, which was a term originally used by Ed Kosofsky Sedgwick. Sapol invokes dissection as a particular example of male bonding, in some cases accompanied by a kind of eroticisation of the corpse and even equating dismemberment with rape. There are these sorts of uh, bits of literature for those interested in that kind of interpretation. Still struggling with the position of women within this tradition of dissection, Harvard's professor of the theory and practice of physic, John Ware, who was born in 1795 and died in 1864, warned that such an exposure to cadavers would result in a, quote, defilement of women's moral constitution, unquote. Even the Times newspaper had expressed its concern with a stark warning that impressionable young ladies might degenerate merely by proximity to dissecting men. Quote, when young women consort with young men under conditions where ordinary delicacy and modesty are necessarily absent, the normal standard of conduct is lowered, no matter how choice the demeanour and character of the feminine neophyte, after a few months of the student's common room, she becomes coarse, immodest and vulgar. Unquote. That's from Charles H. Pring, women medical student in the Times on the 14th of March, 1922. The argument itself, namely that women would inevitably be corrupted through exposure to a, cult a culture around the cadaver, to the point that they might abandon their feminine traits of compassion and empathy, went some way to dispelling the counter-narrative that they deserved their position within medical school precisely because of those features of their character. As it was, the photographic culture that surrounded the corpse and its dissection fortunately rapidly disappeared as the medical schools professionalised and diversified and as anatomy was reframed as a scientific endeavour. But if that were not enough in her reminiscences of medical life in the early 20th century, Ida Mann, born in 1893, died in 1983, who became Oxford's first female professor of anatomy in 1944, describes how her appointment was greeted by the head of the department at the time, Sir Ormuth Wright, on her arrival at St Mary's. Wright reminded Mann that her award was conditional on her staying incommunicado and provided that she, quote, never set foot in the hallowed male territories of the Institute itself, unquote. That comes from her um, autobiography, The Chase, uh, 
which incorporates archives at St Mary's Hospital in London, but which was published uh, in 1972, so not so long ago. No matter how genitalised the distinction of women from men and how pervasively gender was to be insinuated into all things material, understanding and expressing universal laws was always meant to remain a masculine preserve. At the start of the 17th century, Francis Bacon reiterated the notion that nature could be personified as a woman and that her wildest and most unpredictable elements were something that the virile male could not only tame but enslave. His 1620 New Organon, a blueprint for the establishment of scientific method and for its advancement, was written for the purpose in a deliberately penetrative, one might say, style, in which nature could only ultimately be subdued by first rather surreptitiously adopting an attitude towards her of mindful obedience. By the time that Clemence Royer, 1830-1902, first translated Darwin into French, wrote in 1881 in her Le Bien et les Lois Morales that science and its practitioners was a, quote, masculine practice, unquote. She was merely acknowledging an observable fact. Um, actually, to carry on that penetrative analogy of Francis Bacon even further, Bacon recorded, uh, I invite all such to join themselves as true sons of knowledge with me, that passing by the outer courts of nature which numbers have trodden, we may find a way at length into her inner chambers. This idea of uh, nature as a woman and the anatomy to be penetrated, it comes from Bacon's The New Organon of 1620. His masculine birth of time was written between 1602 to 1603. It actually wasn't published during his lifetime. And I think the other thing is that when the Royal Society in London was established, its first secretary, Henry Oldenburg, who was born in 1619 and died in 1677, had specifically articulated the aims of the society to, quote, raise a masculine philosophy, unquote. So this was the sort of temperament of the whole thing. If there has historically been one anatom anatomical focal point of gender discrimination, it can, of course, be found in the uterus. Organic obsession with the uterus has Hellenistic origins, a sort of uterocentricity that had Hippocrates in writing to Democritus in the 4th century BC, attributing some 600 separate diseases to the organ. The Romans conferred on it the most bizarre psychoanalytical overtones, and it was the basis of that apocryphal story of Nero having his mother Agrippina killed and then sliced open so that he could look at her womb and see the place from which he'd been conceived. This story became even more unusual, actually, attesting that Nero demanded from his philosophers to make him pregnant so that he could conceive a son who truly resembled him and not one with a woman whose fidelity he thought couldn't be trusted. And this they did, apparently, so the story goes, by getting him to swallow a live frog. 
and through their skill permit it to develop inside Nero's body, until, unable to stand the pain, he vomited it up. Now, the origin of this story uh, of Nero actually ordering his mother Agrippina to be carved up in front of him is really a piece of a complicated legend borrowing. Most likely it was a medieval invention from a mid-13th century collection of tales, the Golden Legend concerning the lives of the saints, written by Jacopus uh, de Vorane. Uh, and this was itself part of a poem by Jean de Muon, uh, 1240 to 1305, the Roman de la Rose, uh, but retold by the Italian poet Arturo Graff in the uh, 1883 Roma nella memoria e immaginazione del Medioevo. Um, Mern's version recalled tales by the Roman historian Suetonius in his Lives of the Caesars and from the annals of the Roman senator Tacitus. So all of these sort of stories are really complex bastardizations, which are the terms that we've used of other uh, particular stories. For the historian Jonathan Sorday, the womb was, quote, an object sought after with an almost ferocious intensity in Renaissance anatomy theatres. It's a good way of putting it. Indeed, the 17th century uterus was considered by many anatomists a sort of free, wandering agent, unlike the other viscera, <clears throat> that in some particular ways were tied down. I know as medical students in the 1970s, we were taught about the condition of globus hystericus, a severe but intermittent psychosomatic difficulty with swallowing that was not an organic problem, but rather a functional disorder of nature and a distinctly female affliction. What we weren't taught, however, was that the origins of that complaint were derived from the pagan belief that a woman's uterus had a capacity and indeed the a propensity at any given moment to rise up out of her throat and to strangle her. Now, uh, unlike any other viscous in the body, the uterus was viewed as having an independent power of procreation, what's called an avidum generandi, that extended, really exerted upon its host the full gamut of hysterical dysfunctionality, and that could manifest as the worst and most impulsive displays of her guile and jealousy. There's a very, very good book by uh, Ilza Vith called Hysteria, The History of a Disease, put out by Chicago University Press in the mid-60s on that. In this, her uterus was thought to be predictably unpredictable, showing in such paradox a synchrony between the most revered Aristotelian and Galenic thought concerning its functions, but melded with the pagan idea that it was subject to some sort of lunar influence. There were those who even believed that the uterus behaved unsupervised inside a woman, acting like a, an independent animal that was responsible, on the one hand, for an excessive desire for coitus, a furor uterinus, as it was called, and which, on the other hand, could explain her intermittent bouts of melancholia and irrationality. It was the source of all ills. When Anna Morandi displayed her intimate wax models of male genitalia in Bologna 
1771, again with the approval of Pope Benedict XIV, Morandi's colleague, Professor Petronio Ignazio Cecchini, circulated a pamphlet entitled The Genial Days on the Dialectic of Woman Reduced to Its True Principle, Di Geniale della Dialettica della Donna Ridotta al Subvero Principio, calling for all women to be banned from studying anatomy because it would provoke in them what he called l'utero pensante, the thinking uterus. Hysteria became the metonymic byword for a disordered woman and the favourite type of case which the French neurologist Jean-Martin Charcot enjoyed publicly displaying at his Parisian Clinique Surpetriere in the mid-19th century. The expositions of swooning and catatonic hysterics at Charcot's clinics even attracted a young Sigmund Freud, cementing the visual impression for another half a century of mad women as prey to the vicissitudes of their uterus. Over and above his position as an influential physician with his photographers, that is, uh, um, Charcot's photographers, Paul Renard and Désiré uh, Magloire Bonville, constantly by his side, Charcot captured the expressions of afflicted women and girls in a series of photographs which soon became the iconic representations of madness. And, of course, it was female madness. Charcot's 1887 book, Les Démoniaques dans l'Art, The Demonics in Art, served two purposes, highlighting the disproportionate number of women in his asylum and the places images of lunacy occupied at the intersection between pathology and art. Charcot did ultimately, I think, acknowledge that hysterical symptoms could be observed in men, uh, but he was selling a lot of these pictures in a little shop um, outside. Indeed, at the origins of this new science of alienism, as psychiatry was initially called, uh, and when clinicians were framing the boundaries of mental illness and its archetypal presentation, Charcot downplayed the value system of medical qualification, calling himself at one point a photographer and nothing more, unquote. Freud, too, uh, in acknowledging the power of Charcot's imagery, referred to his mentor as, quote, le visuel, unquote. And after he shows, Charcot invariably invited the gobstruck audience to visit an adjoining gift shop, as I've said, which sold the photos of his patients in various states of mental distress. The dramatics of the Salpetriere Clinic were captured, actually, in an 1887 painting in Leçon de Clinique à la Salpetriere by Pierre Aristide André Broyer. It's a, it's a beautiful um, uh, painting um, which um, uh, is at the uh, Descartes University in, in Paris. And each of the group in that portrait shows a woman swooning under Charcot's hand. But each of the women, uh, each of the uh, group portrait has been identified there's an assistant holding the woman who's Joseph Babinski of the Babinski response in Stroke and Jean-Gilles de la Tourette can be seen at the front of the audience sitting in an apron, Tourette of Tourette syndrome. It's a great, uh, great picture. 
If the dire warnings by physicians of the dangers of uterine misbehaviour weren't sufficiently alarming, there was always the opaque response by the church that adopted the uterus as one of its organic homes in an impressive gender confusion proffered by church doctrine to carry Christ in one's heart was to become pregnant with him. Carrying the analogy even further, St Ambrose wrote of those unable to birth the spirit of salvation as suffering from a miscarriage of the word, what he called an abortivum excludant verbum. Extraordinary terminology that uses Christianity and links them. According to Milan's St Ambrose, born AD 340 um, and died 397, all of the passion in accepting Christ lay in utero suementis, in the uterus of the mind. Beyond the uterus, the other area of gendered anatomic focus is, of course, the clitoris. And it was over the clitoris that there'd been the most vociferous argument about its precise position and significance. Vesalius had dismissed it as an anatomical irrelevancy, but it gained prominence once again when his pupil Gabriel Fallopio brought it to attention after Vesalius had left Padua on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And once Fallopio had found it, in inverted commas, it became an object of eponymous battle with Raoul de Colombo, claiming ownership also in 1559 in his De Re Anatomica, after correlating his dissections of the cadaver with some live, what he called, experimentation of a woman's arousal. In the chapter, Colombo actually asks if it's permissible to name things that he had personally discovered. See, nomina rebus ame inventus imponere licet. Perhaps he was aware that a similar structure had been described by the second century physician Rufus of Ephesus and also by the Arab anatomists whose books were available at the time. Nevertheless, uh, Colombo called it the love or sweetness of Venus, amore veneris vel dulcedo appelletur. But if he was talking about the known position of the clitoris, he mistakenly placed it at the exit of the uterus, confusing it really in his writings with the labial folds of the vulva. The labia, or the nymphae, as they were known, were discreet, of course, from the clitoral button, which had already been mentioned by uh, Hippocrates as the columella, or the pillar, by Avicenna as the virga, or rod, and by Albucasus as the amoris dulcedo, the sweet love, and the irritamentum libidinus, the goader of lust. So it had a number of uh, titles. Its structure shows a striking homology, of course, to the penis, and its heightened sensitivity to touch led the midwife Jane Sharp, born 1641, died 1671, in her 1671 guide on how to conduct oneself through childbearing, to celebrate the good fortune of women for effectively having two penises, both a female equivalent and a vestigial male member, that's written in Jane Sharp's um, book, The Midwives' Book, or The Whole Art of Midwifery Discovered, directing childbearing women how to behave themselves in their conception, breeding, bearing, 
and Nursing Children, which was published in London in 1671. So they were very fortunate that they had, as she said, a female equivalent and a vestigial male penis. Even though the body of the clitoris resembles that of the shaft of the penis and its hood can be likened to the penile foreskin, the clitoral location away from the vagina caused both anatomical and psychological consternation. It's a very interesting subject. Freud, in his three essays on the theory of sexuality, hammered the clitoral orgasm as immature in character, shifting the locus of adult female pleasure to what he regarded as its rightful home, the vagina. The clitoris, he wrote in 1905, was, quote, like pine shavings that could be used in order to set a log of harder wood on fire, unquote. And for Freud, the true vaginal orgasm had been repressed by the remnants of its clitoral masculine machinery. Um, it's worth reading that, the three essays on the theory of sexuality written in 1905, translated uh, by James Strachey. It's available in a New York edition in 1962. Um, Sherry Height in the New Height Report um, quotes Betty Dodson, uh, the sex educator, as referring to Freudian psychoanalytic principle of an infantile clitoris as, quote, one of the great sexual tragedies in history. Freud's friend and confidant, Marie Bonaparte, uh, who actually got him out of uh, uh, Austria and into England um, just before Hitler invaded, um, Bonaparte was utterly convinced by the argument of clitoral and vaginal orgasms, and certainly she felt that her anatomy had uh, placed her clitoris too far away from her vagina. It was, she felt, an inevitable cause of her frigidity. Um, in 1924, under the pseudonym A.E. Narjani, she published her findings of what was the acceptable distance between the two structures that she'd personally measured in 200 women. Um, Bonaparte um, said that hers was far too separated to be normal, referring to herself as a tiloclitoridene, that just means a far clitoris, unable to experience sexual arousal and fearful that if she was left intact in that way, she might slip into a lesbian lifestyle. Bonaparte underwent wholly unsuccessful surgery in an attempt to move her clitoris closer to the vaginal outlet. She actually convinced the surgeon Joseph Halbin to operate on her and then again to revise the surgery when it proved unsuccessful. The anatomy of the clitoris was particularly advanced by George Ludwig Kobelt, 1804-1857, in an epic tome, The Male and Female Origins of Sexual Arousal in Man and Some Other Animals, which was published in 1844 in Freiburg. This whole territory of the female erogenous apparatus has been dramatically expanded over recent years with arguably, I think, the Australian neurologist Helen O'Connell contributing as much as Cobalt to our current knowledge of the clitoral um, uh, anatomy. Physicians in the 18th century inserted themselves into the new women's clinics 
superseding the advice of the local midwives and imposing a power dynamic that concentrated women into designated and specialised corners of the hospitals, establishing these gynaecology departments. The business of examining women was established almost as an art form, <clears throat> with the introduction in the 19th century of cold steel, as it were, in the shape of the gynaecological or sim speculum for examination of the vagina and the os or mouth of the cervix. The initial use of the speculum was particularly controversial, and many questioning its intrusiveness, and some attested that it converted women into objects of spectacle and penetrative study, and there was vigorous debate over whether it was even morally acceptable to insert such an instrument into virgins. It's a very interesting book by Lucirigay called Speculum and the Other Woman, uh, uh, which is uh, published in um, 1993. Um, meanwhile, the preserve of female territory became a surgical battleground. The clitoris, for a while, was the culprit for what was called catalepsy that transported susceptible young ladies sometimes into trance-like and seizural states, and clitoral removal was widely advocated for everything ranging from epilepsy to insanity. The ovaries, too, I think, suffered the Victorian fad of an operation called ovariotomy, which was a euphemism for their removal, which took hold in England and the United States between 1850 and 1920, and which was performed often for the most trivial of uh, reasons. Ovariotomy acquired actually an appalling reputation for safety, but as surgical techniques and anaesthesia improved, its indications were widened, mostly for wholly benign ovarian cystic disease accompanied by menstrual pain or irregularity, a condition rather whimsically called menstrual epilepsy. The, um, I might say the, the removal of macroscopically normal ovaries gained the moniker of Batty's operation after the American surgeon Robert Batty born 1828, died 1895, who, along with the German surgeon Ernst Ludwig Alfred Hager, extended its use to women with nymphomania. It's an extraordinary history. There's quite a lot to read about ovariotomy. Uh, there is, for those interested, quite a good book by Ornella Moscucci called The Unsexing of Women. Uh, it's actually in the science of women, that's the chapter of it, Gynecology and Gender in England, 1800 to 1929 uh, from Cambridge University Press. It's a very good book on that subject of ovariotomy. If the perception of sexual separation by uh, virtue of anatomy was anything to go by, whether by divine ordination or tradition, the inferior status of women had been conferred as an ineluctable consequence of an inferior biology. Even before the Italian Renaissance, the painter and art theorist Cennino Cennini, born 1360, died 1440, had prescribed the anatomical foundations for this presumptive state of affairs. Quote, before going any further, he wrote at the start of his 1437 handbook of art, and sculpture, I will give you the exact proportions of man. Those of woman I will disregard, for she does not have any set of proportions. 
I'll not tell you about the irrational animals because you'll never discover any system of proportions in them. And that comes from his Il Libro dell'Arte, the Craftsman's Handbook, written in 1437. In this quest which Cennini had articulated, it would seem that modern anatomical attempts to separate men and women can only now thankfully dispense with such architectural concerns. In the best of traditions, having waived the Aristotelian dichotomies that carved out the male and female preserves from a broader definition of humanity itself, today gender trumps the more restrictive domain of sex. The malleable nature of gender embraces a gamut of expression in our lives, inhabiting each existence with a unique vibrancy and robust and resilient life that is lived beyond the mere constraints of one's biological sex. That which is predetermined to describe processes, physiologic processes such as ovulation, menstruation, childbirth, lactation, the chromosomal element, if you will, does not communicate the psychological and social manifestations of the full gendered experience. Past that, there's still a need to superimpose each individual embodiment of those experiences so that the personality of process can enhance meaning. And if we are to accept Sir Charles Bell's assertion in his essays on anatomy of expression in painting, if we are to accept his assertion that nature, like scripture, should be eminently readable, we can acknowledge that although the new lexicon of the genders has made the body a little harder to read, it still remains eminently legible. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Uh, we might have, uh, in the next one of these sessions, a little afterward before starting in the area of opening bodies.